It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. There are generally two camps of people that listen to this program. I'm sure there's more than two, but uh, uh, the third-party candidate listeners never get the attention that they might deserve. There are the camps of people that absolutely love hearing me talk about my personal life, the different trials and tribulations that I'm dealing with, the different inconveniences that people have to go through on a regular basis. And then there's other people that couldn't care less about that and say uh, that's the part that they change the channel or fast forward through the podcast. Well, even in the first camp of people, back when I had my computer crap out in October, I was going on and on so much about it, whining about it to such a large extent that even the people who say they love hearing about that degree of my personal life, they said, okay, Frank, enough is enough. We get it. You lost your computer. It, you lost a lot of the stuff on there. Sorry, but move on. Well, a funny thing happened uh, this week because this was the first time since my computer crapped out in October that I was actually glad that I lost everything that was on my old laptop. That's because back in September, I got to interview someone that I have admired as a writer, a novelist, a screenwriter, a director, a producer for a long time, Nicholas Meyer. And I did a deep dive into Nicholas Meyer's work. I mean, you talk not only his work on Star Trek II, Star Trek VI, time after time, everything. And uh, lo and behold, we got to speak and I didn't get to ask a fraction of the questions that I was eager to ask. So then lo and behold, uh, we got convinced him to come back for a return engagement today, but I didn't have any of my original notes. So this week I got to go back and do a similar deep dive on the work, the life and times of Nicholas Meyer. And it was great. And I will tell you, Going back and reading the work of Nicholas Meyer or seeing some of it on the screen, it holds up uh, just as well today as it did uh, 40 or 45 years ago. And I am thrilled to welcome back noted novelist, screenwriter, director, producer, whose credits include The 7% Solution, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And I could keep going, but we only have a four-hour program. Mr. Meyer, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Yeah, I'm blushing here. Thank you. I was very pleased to be asked back. So uh, one of the reasons I was eager to have you back this week is uh, this Friday and Saturday, I'm actually moderating a Q&A following a screening of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan with William Shatner. And I'm tasked with interviewing William Shatner before 800 to 1,000 adoring Star Trek fans and asking questions about the movie that you wrote and directed, Star Trek II. So I figured... I can't think of a better person to get a question, sort of a, a cheat sheet question from than you. If you, if you were uh, in my position and not having directed the film, not having written the film, what would you ask? Oh, wow. Um, I think the trick, and it, it, it may be a trick that, that, can't, that can't work, 
is to try to get Bill to introspect and not to sort of give you his public persona. I would ask him about his experiences in space, Mm. because this is the guy who actually went where very few people have gone. He did it, as I understand it, as a guy in his 90s. Um, And I want to know what he thought of that and how or if he relates it to anything that happened before in regard to his Star Trek experiences, because I think I heard him uh, talk about how different the reality was than everything that he had understood. Well, yeah, that is absolutely on my list. I'm definitely going to uh, ask him about that, and he seems pretty eager to chat about that. I I am curious, you know, it's been over 40 years since Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, came out, and a lot of people say this is the film that saved the franchise. A lot of people still say that this is the best of the Star Trek films. I'm curious. Obviously, I'm sure you're proud of the accolades that this film has gotten over the years. But I do wonder, you know, it's been 40 years. Do you ever get tired of interviewers, fans, average ordinary people that you might meet at the grocery store or the deli asking you about your work from 40 years ago? As proud as you might be of that work, do you ever feel sort of, I don't know, trapped by the success of something that happened four decades ago? Well, I might if it had been the only thing that had happened or that that has happened since, there there are actors and artists who get associated with one thing, and that's all anybody wants to talk to them about. Eugene O'Neill's father was trapped as an actor. All people wanted to see him play was the Count of Monte Cristo. They didn't want to talk or see anything else he did. George Reeves was Superman on mm. TV. Clayton Moore was the Lone Ranger. That's it. But I, you know, I, I get asked about other stuff, and I do other stuff, whether it's Star Trek II or Star Trek IV or Star Trek VI or the day after my nuclear war movie that changed Ronald Reagan's mind about a winnable nuclear war and sent him off to Reykjavik to sign the intermediate-range missile treaty with Gorbachev, or the Sherlock Holmes stuff, or my two Philip Roth, you know, I'm... I'm sure. No, you're my... as prolific as as, as anybody. I, uh, I, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, I have to say, I am grateful. Why would I look down my nose or any other portion of my anatomy at people (laughs) who who were made happy or moved by something that I did that so far uh, continues to delight and and please them. I think it would be uh, churlish on my part to say, you know, oh, please, if it was just, you know, the Maybe if it was only that one thing and nobody had ever paid any attention to anything else, maybe I might be more uh, bad-tempered about it, but not at all. I'm, I just am bewildered and, and touched. And I also, I have to say, I hear interesting things about the movie from people. Uh, you would think that they would sort of run out of the things. There are the 
cliched questions about Ricardo Montalban's chest or the way uh, Bill screams out Khan. But there's other things that are uh, really interesting to me. I was talking with a screenwriter friend and who was telling me about how much he loved the movie, and I said something to the effect that my favorite shot in the movie was when the crew of the Enterprise starts ripping up the grating in the torpedo bay so mm. they can launch the torpedo. And I said, I realize that this shot is a complete anachronism and is stolen from every Errol Flynn, Michael Curtis movie that I ever grew up watching and doesn't make any sense. And he said to me, what are you talking about? The electricity was out. They had to pull everything up by hand. <laughs> he had made up, and he had met me halfway. He, he had met me halfway. He he was so into the movie that it didn't seem like an anachronism to him at all. He, you know, he just went with it and found a reason why that had to happen. And that's real collaboration between the the artist and the audience. Uh, I love it. Uh, that's great. And uh, I'm glad ab about your answer as well, because now I don't feel guilty asking you about Star Trek II, uh, which uh, which I might have had you not uh, had you not said that. Uh, this is the first time that you and I have spoken since the passing of Kirstie Alley. Uh, Star Trek II was, of course, her first film. She is terrific in that film as Savick. I'm wondering if you can speak to what it was like working with Kirstie Alley in that film as an actor and as a performer. What was she like? She was a delight. Uh, I had no idea about a lot of her background other than that she was in Wichita. I think she has since confessed that she, you know, made up her resume, which I also have no memory of. Um, I just remember being uh, very sort of um, set back on my heels by what I took to be her originality, her eccentricity, a kind of an offbeat quality, and also her enthusiasm. Mm. Uh, it, it went beyond, as I experienced it, an, an actor who was eager for a part, but represented some deep identification, which in in later years when I learned about all the things that had happened in her own life and her difficulties and stuff, I think that her identification with Spock or identification with Trek was probably something that it was it was more than a passion. It was something that sort of saved her um, or oriented her or gave her some guidance, which she seemed otherwise to be missing, if I understood her correctly. We're talking with Nicholas Meyer, and uh, if you're a fan of Sherlock Holmes, you're going to want to check out his most recent novel, Return of the Pharaoh, which I have not read, uh, but I did read uh, some previous uh, Sherlock Holmes material that you've written, and uh, everybody is talking about the Return of the Pharaoh. It's getting a lot of uh, buzz, not just among Sherlock Holmes fans, but among other audiences as well, and I want to ask you about that in a moment. But as far as Star Trek 2, 
2 goes. One of the things that I think a lot of people, a lot of Star Trek fans that regard this as the best of the franchise or the film that saved the franchise, one of the things they may not realize is the budget restrictions that you were under as compared to the first movie because the the second film in a lot of respects just looks so great and in many respects looks superior uh, to the first film. What? How much of a handicap were those budget restrictions and how much did that factor into the kind of story you were trying to tell visually and otherwise? I have a theory that art thrives on restrictions. That when you can't simply throw a lot of money at stuff, you are forced to be uh, perhaps more inventive, more creative. Um, one of my favorite movies of all time is the Laurence Olivier movie Henry V from the Shakespeare play. And Henry V was shot in the middle of World War II on a budget that must have been $6.75. And it, it looks like millions were spent. And that movie had a big influence on my life. I hmm. saw it the time when I was 13 years old, I think, and I just kept watching. You could sit in the movie again and again and again and again. And it was the first time I ever got why Shakespeare was great, why he was great, why this movie was fantastic. And I watched it until the theater closed. My, my folks had no idea where I was. Um, but I had a religious experience. I was Saul of Tarsus struck blind on the road to Damascus. <laughs> Art thrives on restrictions. So all I was trying to do was sort of make the movie that I was trying to make. I wasn't thinking about the budget of the other movie. I, wa I was using hand-me-down sets. I was using hand-me-down sort of everything um, and special effects from the other movie and whatever. It didn't matter to me. Um, I was trying to write a script, which I had cobbled together from five other previous drafts to make a second movie. The stories were all different in each five scripts. And I didn't think in terms of money. I just thought in terms of what did I want to see and how much popcorn did I want to get through while I was mm. watching. And because if you start thinking in terms of money, you'll start pulling your punches or thinking that more money is going to save it or something like that. So I, rightly or wrongly, it was only the second movie I'd ever directed. I wasn't thinking about that. I wasn't thinking about franchise. I didn't know what a franchise was. I, I didn't know what the word meant. Um, I was just working on that one movie, and all I was thinking about was submarines and destroyers, and battleships, and the Navy in outer space. Um, and so it was what was going on inside the ships and what was going on outside the ships. And I sort of bisected thinking about the movie in terms of an indoor-outdoor movie. That's all I really remember sure. about I don't think I was thinking in terms of we don't have enough money. On Star Trek VI, we didn't have enough money, and that was really a drag. 
Um, I, I'm so surprised to hear that because I would think the final final voyage of the original Enterprise crew would have been a, a big priority financially and otherwise for Paramount. And I'm also surprised to see to hear that because I've seen the film so many times, probably hundreds of times, and the visuals and the special effects and the makeup are uh, so impressive. I mean, the scene alone on uh, Gorkin's ship where uh, they lose the gravitational field and everybody's floating around and you see them kicking these uh, goblets of purple blood floating in the air. I mean, that is, to this day, more than 30 years later, as compelling a a visual image and as as great a special effect as anything that I've seen. And yet you say that you guys didn't have enough money. Well, what happened was when the movie was proposed to me, which is when I was living in London, they said $30 million, and I said, okay. And by the time I got to Los Angeles and rented a place in in Los Angeles for my family and whatever, they they said, now we're talking about $25 million. And I said, wait, 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 wait. (laughs) We're talking about... $30 $30 million, because when I was taken to lunch at Claridge's, no less, um, I was told 30 and I can do it for 30 I can't do it for $25. Um, now, what had happened, which they didn't want to talk about, was that the feature division at Paramount had been hemorrhaging red ink for the previous five or six months. Mm. As one feature after another feature after another feature, some of them costing $40 million a pop, had all tanked. So suddenly there was a lot of musical chairs going on for executives, and they were getting cold feet about $30 million. And I said, look, you, you have $14 million above the line in this movie. That's how much the director, the writer, and the basic Star Trek cast is going to cost you. That's Fourteen million before anything right. has happened. Right. So now you've got what two million dollars in special effects, or two million dollars in post-production and music, and so forth. Now we're up to nineteen million dollars. Where's the movie? Uh, you know, they said. <laughs> Would you excuse us for a minute? Um. So <laughs> they they went away for 20 minutes while my team sort of just sat there. And then they came back and they said, uh, okay, 27. And I said, guys, you're under a misapprehension. I'm not negotiating with you. I'm, I'm giving you information. And I went through it again and I said, look, Star Trek The Motion Picture, 1979, cost $45 million. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, was an 11.2, made by Mrs. Meyer's oldest. But every movie <laughs> since every Star Trek has cost 41% more than its predecessor. So you got up to Star Trek V, that was $30 million. I'm willing to do Star Trek VI for the same amount as V, which is like two years ago. But you can't get blood from a turnip, and this isn't going to happen. And then they started saying that I wasn't a team player. (laughs) I just sat there getting angrier and angrier. And I said, forget this. I'm going to the big cheese. I'm going to explain the whole thing. 
So I went to the big cheese, and I laid it all out for him. Big cheese was very polite. Thank you for explaining it. Thank you for showing me the top sheet. And then he canceled the movie. <laughs> oh, jeez. So then what happened? How did the film get back on track and with what budget? Well, the movie was over, and I I thought, gee, I, I have a six-month lease on a house in Beverly Hills. <laughs> here. I, how do I go home and tell my wife as I'm throwing objects from my desk into a carton? And I was really shocked because I didn't think that would happen. And I took one sort of last look. I was walking on the empty soundstage where we were supposed to be shooting something. And in those days, before portable phones, you know, cell phones, there was a phone that was always on a on a on a stand in the in the soundstage. It had a little light on it so that if it rang while you were shooting, the bell didn't ring. Just a little light went off, so you'd know there was a phone call. And so I'm standing there alone in this huge thing, and I see the light blink. <laughs> Who could that be for? So like a schmuck, you know, I, I picked up, hello. Um, and I, I picked it up. It was Stanley Jaffe, for whom I had written a great deal of uh, Fatal Attraction. And he said, uh, Sherry, Sherry and I, meaning Sherry Lansing, uh, are, are, are taking over running the studio. I hear you got a problem. I said, yeah, I need $5 million. And he said, you got it. And that was how we went back on. Wow. Thank goodness. From a fan's perspective, uh, what a sin it would have been if that film uh, was never made. Uh, uh, really briefly on Star Trek Six, because I really want to talk with you about uh, the return of the Pharaoh, which uh, I have heard nothing but great things about. And it sounds like it's led to when some plan to read it, I have to ask. Uh, well, so it, this is my struggle these days is with a 14 month old. My uh, time that is not reading or excuse me, not sleeping or working. I have to bend, be very judicious with uh, with how I'm choosing to uh, to use okay. my reading time. But I will read it. I, I, I you're good enough to come on the program and uh, and submit yourself to my interrogation. So I will. And I did enjoy the seven percent solution uh, immensely. So uh, I will happily read any Sherlock Holmes tale that uh, that you write. But l- let me uh, just end end with this on the Star Trek Six front. there's obviously a very prominent Vulcan female character in that picture, just as there was in Star Trek II. But unlike Star Trek II, III, IV in the movies where the Vulcan was Savick, it's a different character played by Kim Cattrall, but very similar to Savick in a lot of respects. I know that the original idea was to have that character be Savick, why wasn't the character Savick, even if there had to be a different actress than Kirstie Alley or Robin Curtis, why not keep the character the same as Savick? Well, I guess you can argue this a lot of different ways. To me, just as a as a fan, I could never see anybody but Kirstie in the role. Um, I, I didn't want to see yet another Savick. Uh, I suppose we're now used to seeing, you know, everybody and his brother play James Bond. Um, But for those of us who started with Sean Connery, um, it's Mm. hard to get your head around whatever. I I suppose there are other people who've done it. For example, there have been a million people, and probably close to a million, 
who've played Hamlet. Mm. And we don't say, you know, Richard Burbage, the first Hamlet, uh, back in, you know, 15, whatever it was. <laughs> uh, he's the only Hamlet. Everybody and his brother, sooner or later, plays Hamlet. So there have been many great Hamlets. I'm not sure, but my favorite isn't Mel Gibson, because that's a great Hamlet. Um, but I just, maybe because of the way I met and cast and 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 used Kirsty. If it wasn't going to be Kirsty, I was just going to say let's let's create mm-hmm. another character. I I don't want to be angry at an actress for not being Kirsty the whole time. Um, that makes sense. And so much of that film is an allegory, very obvious, for what was happening on Earth at the time and what was going on with the Cold War at the time. There are analogies to uh, Chernobyl and the Soviet Union and Gorbachev and uh, the United States and the Federation. It's really interesting. And it's interesting to me that that followed the work that you did on The Day After, which uh, you alluded to was a, a TV movie, but so much more than that. It was a TV event. More than 100 million people watched that film during its initial broadcast. A 62 share. It's difficult to imagine anything on any network, even if you put it on all the networks, getting a a, a 62 share. I think a lot of people have seen the film, but now that we're kind of starting to talk about the possibility of armed conflict with Russia again, and you have the possibility... Or three, yes, go on. Well, right, and you have this very real possibility of the two biggest nuclear powers on uh, the Earth coming to blows again. I think people may be looking to give the day after a uh, another another look. And when I interviewed Steve Gutenberg recently, we talked a little bit about this. I'm wondering if you can speak to the role the Department of Defense played, if any, in the production of this film. Were they cooperative? Did they stonewall you? Did they give you information? Did they give you a hard time? What was their role as you were trying to make this film? Well, let me explain to your listeners who may be unfamiliar with it that the movie, which was aired in 1983, was on ABC, and it depicted a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. But it did not depict it from the point of view of politicians or or from the military point of view or the political point of view, it depicted it from the point of view of Lawrence, Kansas, which is more or less the geographic center of the continental United States, give or take. And it was just about regular people, people like us who were just doing their normal stuff, and then they get nuked. And the Department of Defense offered us cooperation— they could have we could have anything we wanted on one condition and that was that we ensured that to depict that the Soviet Union started the war we told them to go take a hike so that was the end of the cooperation from the defense department that was it Oh, wow. Uh, it's still, I mean, it's still a uh, an incredible film and one that uh, that people talk about uh, this many years later. 
One of the things that I am really interested in in seeing with the return of the Pharaoh, which is uh, the latest Sherlock Holmes novel that you've done, is seeing how Sherlock Holmes, who people might have be might have read in different scenarios over the years, different adventures, solving different mysteries, both in your work, other writers' work, and of course in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's work. I don't know that they've seen him in Egypt before. Why did you choose to put Sherlock Holmes in Egypt? How did that come about? Well, Conan Doyle, again, to give your listeners some background, the there are 60 Sherlock Holmes stories written by Arthur Conan Doyle, four novellas and 56 short stories. The short stories being the really great, mm-hmm. the, that's the meat of it. Um, since I got involved, I've now written five of these novels, and I'm working on my sixth. And what I found is that most of the time, I think almost all the time, uh, Holmes is always in England. Ninety uh, percent of the time he's in London, but occasionally he goes uh, out of town to work on mysteries. But I found that my own creative juices got flowing when I would take Holmes out of his normal uh, train set of train tracks and put him in a different place, a, a fish out of Thames water, if you like. Mm-hmm. So in the 7% solution, he goes to Vienna. In the uh, the Canary Trainer, which was uh, or the West End Horror, West End Horror is all in London, but the Canary Trainer, he's in Paris. In the Adventure of the Peculiar Protocol, he's in Russia. And my agent, uh, Alan Gasmer, to whom the book is dedicated, said, "What about homes in Egypt?" And I really love this idea for several reasons. I had been in Egypt uh, many years ago and had w- was fascinated by Egypt, by archaeology, had gone inside the Great Pyramid, which you enter through the robber's entrance, which is it's just a hole that you crawl, so, sort of as if you were crawling to the top of the Empire State Building, because it's very tall, but you're doing it on an angle, and you can't turn around. If there's people behind you, blah, blah. Um, and I've always been interested in archaeology, and Holmes's chronology, uh, which is to say his life, coincides with the period when Egyptology, Egyptomania, uh, a lot of rich Englishmen, rich Frenchmen, rich Americans came to Egypt to look for buried treasure, to look for artifacts that they could take home. And it wasn't just Egypt. If you are following the controversy with the Elgin marbles, Lord Elgin went to Greece and took home a huge chunk of the Parthenon, which is now in the British Museum. And the Greeks would like their Parthenon back. <laughs> Understandably. It's uh, yeah. valuable enough to pay off their whole debt, which is saying quite a bit. You bet. So I thought this whole business about 
Egyptomania and looking for for buried treasure, particularly if you were an English nobleman who was maybe down on his luck and thought he could bail himself out by, you know, finding buried artifacts. And so one thing led to another, and I put Holmes on the case. It takes place in Egypt in 1911. So he's, you know, he's no longer a a young guy. Um, And it's also about Howard Carter, who was the guy who in 1922 uh, uncovered the only tomb that has never been broken into, which was... Tutankhamun's tomb, King Tut's tomb. This is why King Tut, who was otherwise an unremarkable pharaoh, I think he died by the time he was 19, Um, but his tomb is the only tomb that the robbers hadn't got to. And Howard Carter found it, so I thought, put Howard Carter together with Sherlock Holmes and call it the return of the pharaoh. Well, I, I can't wait to read it. I mean, I, I'm uh, pretty interested in uh, ancient Egypt, and uh, there's always been uh, a tremendous fascin- fascination on my part in terms of those pyramids, the function they served for the Egyptian, the construction, as you mentioned, the uh, the fact that they were almost all uh, targeted by robbers over the years, and uh, to picture Sherlock Holmes in uh, in that world is uh, is really something. Hey. I- I had heard that you actually got to speak before the British House of Commons because of your work with uh, Sherlock Holmes. That's not something that most Americans can lay claim to. <laughs> well, um, it was the House of Commons dining room. It wasn't like I was actually in the <laughs> House of Commons. But on January 14th, this past you know a couple of weeks ago, the Sherlock Holmes Society of London invited me to be there the keynote speaker at their annual dinner, which is held inside the House of Commons, which is in the Houses of Parliament. And you have to go through metal detectors and take your watch and your belt and everything off. And But when you're once you're in there, you're in the middle of history, and there's, there's nobody around except the security guards. So I walked over a plaque where it said, on this spot, Sir Thomas Moore was sentenced to be beheaded. And I walked into another plaque, again, brand new plaque, on this spot, Queen Elizabeth II lay in state. That was a brand new plaque. And then you walk into this, uh, the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, uh, and they were having dinner in the House of Commons, about uh, 120 people, House of Commons uh, dining room, I should specify. And I and I got to uh, give a talk. I was the keynote speaker, and I, the talk I gave was called "Under the Influence," which was a subject about things that influence you. And I said that you know probably there are two kinds of influences, broadly speaking: the influences that you're aware of, that you're conscious of, and then the ones that you've absorbed, but you don't even know that they've influenced you. Um, and I said, I think childhood are influences of of people, of experiences, of scenery, of art, are, are maybe the most vivid, the most long-lasting. We, 
we say it's at an impressionable age, mm. an impressionable age. That's when things seem to make themselves so deeply felt, things that you experienced when you were a kid. So it was a kind of open-ended talk about things that influence, and then things that you don't even know. You know, going back to the wrath of Khan, I realized think 30 years later, maybe 35 years later, that there was a movie that I absolutely loved, hadn't seen it in years, that totally influenced the climax of the movie. And it was it's a movie called The Enemy Below, and it starred Robert Mitchum as the captain of a destroyer and Kurt Jurgens as the captain of a Nazi U-boat. And it's about this Mutara Nebula duel between the destroyer and the submarine. Um, it was also directed by a director that nobody ever would know in a trillion years. It's the greatest trivia question of all. Who directed The Enemy Below was Dick Powell. You're kidding. Uh-oh. No, I, I'm not kidding. That is that is wild. Uh, for people that don't know, uh, Dick Powell was uh, an incredible musician, an actor, and a guy who kind of uh, came to fame as uh, Detective Philip Marlowe uh, back in the day. That, that is wild. I had no idea he directed anything. Not a, he directed. Uh, yeah, he uh, he produced a lot of television with Charles Boyer and David Niven. I think they had a company called Four Star. Productions. I'm trying to remember who the fourth star was. He also directed a movie that I've never seen that I've always wanted to see. I suspect it's not a very good movie. Um, it was called The Conqueror. It was a Howard Hughes hmm. production and starred John Wayne as Genghis Khan. And they filmed it in St. George, Utah. And everybody involved in the movie died of cancer because they were all exposed Mm. to nuclear radiation from the nuclear testing sites and they they didn't know how lethal it was so john wayne and susan howard uh, hayward and uh dick powell and uh, a, a lot of people on that movie um, but I've never seen it. I don't, I, and I don't even know where to see. Yeah, it. I, I've heard the story about the the cancer fallout from that as well. I've never seen the film either, Mr. Meyer. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I uh, do hope you'll come back soon, and I am hoping by the next time we speak, I will have read Return of the Pharaoh. It's available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. If people want to check it out, uh, thank you so much for the time, as always. Well, thank you. It was fun. If you want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Nicholas Meyer, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.